Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 463. Today, we are celebrating the seventh anniversary of the Slow Flowers Podcast. I want to take a moment and marvel at the significance and what this means to me, the significance of sharing so many wonderful conversations with listeners over the years since launching this little project on July 23rd, 2013. The timing of this podcast debut was just a few months after the publication of the book, Slow Flowers, Four Seasons of Locally Grown Bouquets from the Garden, Meadow, and Farm, when I introduced the first ever podcast for the floral marketplace. I began to invite guests to share their voices, ideas, and inspiration. From domestic flower farmers to designers taking a seasonal and sustainable approach to their floral art, I've pursued unique programming for you. For 362 consecutive weeks, this has been the podcast you can rely on to bring you stories of American flowers and the people who grow and design with them. This podcast actually predates the launch in May 2014 of slowflowers.com, the free nationwide online directory to florists, shops, and studios who design with American-grown flowers and to the farms that grow those blooms. Slowflowers.com began with about 250 members across the U.S., and it has evolved into the Slow Flowers Society with 750 sustaining members across North America in the U.S. and Canada, members who, like you, care about making a conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. So we have a lot to celebrate and a lot to be grateful for. We've shared conversations on topics important to progressive, sustainably-minded floral entrepreneurs, and I'm excited to continue the strong momentum as this show is more popular than ever. Episodes have been downloaded by listeners like you more than 625,000 times over the past seven years. And we currently enjoy 10,000 to 12,000 monthly downloads. So while metrics aren't everything, they are one important indicator of the relevance of our content. I want to pause and thank all of our current Slow Flowers podcast sponsors to remind you that their contributions sustain the production and distribution of this show. Thank you to the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers, Longfield Gardens, Rooted Farmers, Syndicate Sales, Johnny's Selected Seeds, Mayesh Wholesale Florist, The Gardener's Workshop, and Florist Review Magazine. And now to today's guest. We are in a season of challenge and change like never before. And I want to bring you what I believe is a very special and timely replay episode from our archives. It has always been my goal to produce a fresh new episode every week. And but for a few exceptions, I've been able to do so. But with the heightened awareness about the fight against systemic racism and Slow Flower's stated commitment to support black flower farmers and florists, we want to turn the focus on their voices, including revisiting past interviews you may have missed. In the coming months, we want to share a light on black pioneers and leaders in the Slow Flowers community, members and friends. We have several new guests booked in the coming months, but today I want to reintroduce you to Leah Pennyman. I'm so incredibly excited to rebroadcast my January 23rd, 2019 conversation with Leah as we discussed her new book, Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farms Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land, published October 2018 by Chelsea Green Publishing. 
Leah Penniman is a Black Creole educator, farmer, author, and food justice activist from Soul Fire Farm in Grafton, New York. She co-founded Soul Fire Farm in 2011 with the mission to end racism in the food system and reclaim an ancestral connection to land. As co-executive director, Leah is part of a team that facilitates powerful food sovereignty programs, including farmer trainings for black and brown people, a subsidized farm food distribution program for people living under food apartheid, and domestic and international organizing toward equity in the food system. Leah holds an MA in science education and a BA in environmental science and international development from Clark University. She has been farming since 1996 and teaching since 2002. The work of Leah and Soul Fire Farm has been recognized by the Soros Racial Justice Fellowship, Fulbright Program, Omega Sustainability Leadership Award, Presidential Award for Science Teaching, NYS Health Emerging Innovator Award, and Andrew Goodman Foundation, among others. All proceeds from the sale of Farming While Black are used to support black farmers. Soul Fire Farm is a black, indigenous, and people of color-centered community farm committed to ending racism and injustice in the food system. Soul Fire Farm raises and distributes life-giving food as a means to end food apartheid. With deep reverence for the land and wisdom of ancestors, the farm works to reclaim its collective right to belong to the earth and have agency in the food system. Soul Fire brings diverse communities together on its healing land to share skills on sustainable agriculture, natural building, spiritual activism, health, and environmental justice. Leah and her colleagues are training the next generation of activist farmers and strengthening the movements for food sovereignty and community self-determination. Let's jump right in and get started. Please buy this book and educate yourself about the amazing strides taken and incredible challenges facing the black farming community. Check out today's show notes for episode 463 at deborahprinzing.com to see photos of Leah and Soul Fire Farm and find links to Leah's social places so you can follow and support her important work. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, and I am so delighted today to welcome a special guest, Leah Penniman. Leah is one of the co-founders, or the co-founder, of Soul Fire Farm, and the author of Farming While Black, this fabulous new book that's just come out, and we're going to talk about that. Hi, Leah. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. Oh, my pleasure, and I know we're not looking at each other. We're doing this over Skype. I hope I get to meet you in person. And I, I just have to say, I think I told you in an email that um, Karen Washington, who wrote the forward to your book, is the first person who mentioned that I needed to track you down and get a copy of Farming While Black. And I'm so glad she did. Uh, I met her last summer at a American Horticultural Society event. So virtual hello. Um, <laughs> can you can you give us a snapshot of what uh, what and where uh, your farm is Soul Fire Farm. That's hard to say. I'm sorry. I'm tripping over it. So, Soul Fire. <laughs> it's a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? <laughs> no. Tell us about your your farm and where it is. And and I know there's multiple facets to this farm. Sure. Uh, so we at Soul Fire Farm are in the mountains of Grafton, New York, which is about 40 minutes outside of Albany, the capital of New York State. Uh, we steward 72 acres and 
intensively cultivate about five of those in mixed vegetables, herbs, chickens for eggs and meats, uh, and fruits, including some flowers, of course. Yay! <laughs> and our mission is to end racism and injustice in the food system. And we're working on that in three different ways. The first is uplifting and using Afro-Indigenous farming practices to produce food for those who need it most in our community. Mm. So, you know, we're boxing up 100 boxes of delicious veggies every week and bringing them to the doorsteps of people who pay whatever they can afford for that food. So that's the first and foundational, most important thing. And then in addition, we run educational programs for thousands of aspiring Black Indigenous farmers um, who come through each year to learn everything from, you know, seed keeping to marketing. And then finally, we're working on organizing. So uh, we're part of a movement for reparations of land and resources to those from whom it was stolen and uh, I work on a regional land trust as well as national policy work. So that's that's us in a nutshell at Soul Fire. Oh, my gosh. And you founded the farm when? Well, you know, all stories have multiple beginnings, <laughs> but I will say that, you know, my husband and I, uh, my beloved Jonah, we were raising our two very young children in the south end of Albany, which is a food apartheid neighborhood, mm. which means you really can't get fresh food despite your motivation. And our neighbors encouraged us to start the farm for the people, having learned about our extensive farming backgrounds. So this land sort of wrapped its little tendrils of belonging around us back in 2006, but it was an eroded hillside um, with shrubs and forests. There was no driveway, no septic, no electric, no infrastructure. So it took us four years to actually um, get the land prepared to be a farm. Um, so we moved out here in December of 2010 and, and opened the farm uh, the next season. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's the daunting task that farmers um I think the the realization that okay, I have land, but uh, it's not right. it's not seed ready or whatever. Oh my gosh. Okay, exactly. so so you're kind of uh, would you say like a mature farm by now in terms of your ability to work this the work the soil and get get you know plants in the ground and or do you still have 70 acres is a lot. I'm sure you're still developing the property. Yeah, I mean, I would say we are probably a young adult farm mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, we're always learning about our systems. It's something that I love about farming is what worked last year might not work this year and the climate is changing, the pests are changing. So it will always be dynamic, but we now are cultivating as much as we want to. We're mm -hmm. at five acres. Um, we have a cover crop integration. We have an animals integration and we're going to leave the rest of the land as forest for the wildlife. Mm. Uh, so that's, that's really exciting for us. And so we're at a point, of, instead of expanding every year, that we're starting to refine and hone our systems. Right. And you have to, because you have to get to this point where you can catch your breath and start. I mean, I don't know. Are you are you a for-profit farm? Or I was going to say start getting profitable, but maybe that doesn't apply to Soul Fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a way, it definitely does. You know, while we did incorporate as a nonprofit in 2016, something that's been so important to us because we are training farmers is to have a financially viable operation. So we keep the books for the farm separate in the sense that we don't take grants or foundation money to support the farm. We really ensure that the income from the crop sales, from the chicken sales, um, as well as, you know, small contributions from neighbors who want to subsidize, you know, other people's share. Mm. That goes into the income line item for the farm in a way that 
that still shows that we're in the black, mm-hmm. um, which we have been for several years and we're very excited about because it would be disingenuous to train farmers to run a farm that's going to be dependent on grants. Yes. I think that's a really important point. Like you are modeling um, how to make a sustainable livelihood from land. And so you have to almost have the, you know, open your books and show that to students who come and study with you or your interns or, you know, those that you're trying to train, right? Absolutely. And it's not easy and definitely no shade to the farmers who struggle with that because the U.S. food system is not on our side. You know, it's not set up for small farmers to be profitable. So um, it takes a lot of creative ingenuity to make that work. I find that so often when I'm interviewing people who are trying to get a flower farm started or maybe a combination food and flower farm where there's sort of this apology like, oh, this is just my side hustle or uh, my partner has to still, you know, be a firefighter or, you know, whatever, like that seems to be the reality is that there's got to be off farm income for so many small farmers. Um, have you yeah, seen I read that? that it's well over 90% actually of small farmers that rely on outside income. Um, so mm-hmm. it's tough for us, you know, mm-hmm. right now, the way the farm bill is set up is all those big subsidies are going, you know, mainly it's a commodity crops and large scale corporate agriculture, you know, some countries like Costa Rica, uh, have it arranged so that you're paid for the ecosystem services that you provide as a smallholder. So if you're, if you're providing habitat for pollinators and conserving soil and sequestering carbon, you're actually getting paid by the public trust for that work. And, and that's something we have to ultimately move toward if we want to have a sustainable food system in this nation, but we're not even close. Oh my gosh. We could get into such a political discussion about all these (laughs) sort of, these sort of, um, all that weight that is put on the word farmer where people are acting like they want to help farmers and yet, and I mean people, I mean like policymakers, and yet you're not in that thought bubble when they're talking about helping a farmer, I'm sure. You're not even on the radar or any small farmer isn't on the radar of the farm bill uh, discussion, I would think. Yeah. So to the credit of the USDA, since we successfully sued them and they realized how discriminatory they were, they have made some efforts. So, for example, if you look at the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, which we know because it's how you get a high tunnel, right, or how you get a forestry plan, they've done a lot of good work outreaching to the community and paying attention to the to making sure that their grants get to those who have been historically excluded. Uh, But that's just a very, very small program amidst the the large, you know, nine billion plus farm bill. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I would encourage the USDA to look at the successes of Equip and and replicate that throughout all of their activities. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the USDA, and you're right; they they have some wonderful programs in place for like young farmers, um, veterans, women farmers, people of color. Like there's 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 a little bit of money trickling into the incubate. Um, programs and maybe even individual applicants. But um, I would love to talk a little bit about this theme because in when we're, when, I, I guess we'll just switch over to talking about Farming While Black. This book is, first of all, it's, it's amazing. I mean, the amount of work you had to put into this just blows my mind. Um, having worked on books myself, I just know it becomes all consuming, doesn't it? It sure does. <laughs> My boys, when they were little, were like, Mommy, please don't write another book, please. <laughs> right, because <laughs> they know they won't see you. You're right. going to disappear into your office. I know and... your, your family probably had to sacrifice quite a bit to help you, support you. So the publisher is Chelsea Green Publishing. Is that, they've, 
they're the same people who published Lynn Bazinski's famous book, The Flower Farmer, which is how I first found out about this publisher. So it seems like a really good fit for this for this book is to have a publisher that supports progressive agriculture. It, it seems like they were the right people to go with. Um, so congratulations yeah. on that. Thank you so much. Yeah. And, and I'm so grateful to have had the chance to work with them. You know, Michael Mativier, who's my editor, had actually been reaching out for years before um, I finally made the time to write the book saying, we'd love to publish something about Soulfire Farm and about your work, uh, which I was I was so honored by. I know a lot of authors don't have that privilege and have to go around and try to find a publisher and convince them of the worthiness of their story. So um, Chelsea Green's been super supportive. Yeah. yeah. But you were doing the, you were doing the, the work that re- deserved to be put on the page. And so, you know, it, it, that was the Thank sort you. of the front loading that happened. So d- I want to talk a little bit about what, how you tackled this book, because the first section really, I find like a history lesson on what has happened to people of color in this country back to slavery days and their relationship with land. And all the, all the chapters in that narrative that have led to this dis- disparate uh, nature today of how many, how few black farms are owned and how much land has been lost to people of color. And I don't know if you can kind of touch on some of the, the findings that you came across. And then as that relates to your reference earlier about the USDA lawsuit, because I, I knew nothing about that until I read it in your book. Yeah, it's incredible how little is known um, by the general public about the history of black farming. And I certainly learned a lot through the book. Um, and, and but I really have it really is a life work. You know, this has been I've been farming over 20 years and gathering this information and finally uh, was able to put it down. But I would say that, you know, racism is part of the DNA of the U.S. food system. You know, the U.S. food system is not broken. It's been built upon stolen land and exploited labor from the beginning. Um, you look at, of course, enslavement, you know, the building of trillions of dollars of wealth in this country on the backs of unpaid laborers who were kidnapped from from our homes. Um, but it didn't end with slavery. You know, we have the sharecropping system, convict leasing, which is uh, going essentially on crazy. Yeah, like fab- yeah, fabricating crimes and getting people in jail so that they can uh, be leased back to the plantation. And even today, the farm workers uh, who do 85% plus of the labor in this country are Mexican and other Latino Hispanic uh, guest workers through the H-2A program who do not have the same legal protections as other workers um, under federal law. So, and that's, you know, that's just on the worker side. If you look at the land itself, you know, almost all of it is stolen from indigenous people in the first place. So, so that's that's the original sin of the nation that we've never really dealt with. And then and then stolen again. So as as black folks did manage to acquire land holdings during the Reconstruction period, they were driven off uh, by white supremacist terrorism uh, with violence, you know, 4000 plus lynchings targeting la- black landowners and also by discrimination by the federal government who owed supports to these farmers, but systematically denied them. So this is the legacy that we're living with. So it's certainly not a surprise or an accident that of the rural land is controlled by white folks today. And it's the whitest farming is the whitest profession. Uh, But I think equally important to uplift is all the ways that black people have contributed profoundly to what we now call sustainable agriculture today. Yeah. Everything from like vermicomposting to raised beds to the CSA have roots in, in African agrarianism. So the book really, um, 
aims to do both things, to to expose the exploitation and oppression and also uplift the dignity and contributions of black farmers. That's one of the most beautiful things about the way you've designed this book is that you have these little um, mini vignettes or stories, and you call them uplifts, and I, which I love, um, that kind of show up every few pages with maybe a, a call out to a, a model that you want people to know about and it could be in the U.S. or it could be in another country. Um, it could be kind of a history lesson or it could be contemporary. And I'm sure that the, con- the network of people that you've you know, brought into your world just by working on this book, you've probably just been so inspired by the stories of successes and lessons that um, can model for new farmers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that we realized really on really early on in the work of Soul Fire Farm um, it was maybe 2012 when I got a call from Coffee Dixon from Boston, saying, "Is it really true that this farm is led by Black folks?" And because um, I'm so discouraged trying to get into this work, I haven't been able to find an incubator farm or a training program or an agricultural degree program that works for me. Um, and I just need to know that it's possible. Mm. And so out of that conversation, we ended up starting our uh, Black Latinx Farmers Immersion. And it filled up in 24 hours with one Facebook post. You know, and since then, we've had you know, hundreds and hundreds of people come through. And time and again, what we hear is is so important and so different about the program is understanding that, you know, Black folks coming to the land of our own free will is not a new idea, you know, and that that we can reach back beyond the 500 years of land-based oppression to this thousands-year-old uh, tradition of, mm. of noble and dignified belonging on land and to really connect to that narrative and, and to concretely learn those techniques has been so important for folks. So this program, is it like a residency program or or how, how do you describe it? Yeah, people do come stay with us. So um, the sort of flagship program is a 50-hour week-long immersion. Um, that's for beginners and advanced beginners. But we also have, you know, day-long workshops for established farmers and we have season-long apprenticeships um, as well. And this is now another, I mean, it seems so rewarding too that you have this farm that can really be a school almost, be, be a hub for just spreading knowledge and encouraging us, well, I'm sure over the years, hundreds of people who've, who've seen that this model, like the person who called you from Boston and said, just tell me it's possible. Um, you're the kind of the in the live in-person version of what people have studied maybe in school and they just need to see it's possible and get their hands in the dirt and learn from you. Yes, I think that's definitely true. You know, there's a a lot of people who maybe like the idea of farming or the idea of being connected <laughs> to the lands and then the opportunity to be on the farm and experience the real deal, like all the joy and glory and magic and also the challenge right. of it is so important. And we're happy to be able to offer that. Right. So about how many participants come through the, uh, how do you say it? Black Latinx? How do you say that word? Latinx? Yeah. And I, I'm sort of hesitating on the word because we just renamed the program. So I don't know if I should use. So it's now called FIRE, uh, BIPOC FIRE. So uh, Farming in Relationship with Earth. Okay. Um, but whatever we want to call it, uh, we have seven sessions each summer for 20 people each. So that's 140 folks who come through in a year. Wow. That's exciting. Well, I'm really, I'd love to, I'd love to be a fly on the wall and watch that happen some summer. That's wonderful. Um, And do you, do people pay a fee or is it just like your CSAs where people pay what they can? 
it's just like our CSA. So we do everything on a sliding scale down to almost zero. Mm. Um, and I, that's really important. I think it's good to give people an opportunity to contribute to things that they value, especially if they're able to, uh, but not to exclude anyone on the, you know, basis of their access to wealth and income. Right. So you're, I feel like the second big section of Farming While Black is really um, a primer on, on running a farm, building and running a farm. And it's, I'm wondering, it, this is what you've been teaching all these years. You finally <clears throat> gathered it together in a, in a book uh, form for those who can't, maybe, maybe can't make it to fire or a soul flower farm. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's the heart of the book, really. Um, you know, theory is nice, but it's not my strong point. I really like rolling up my sleeves and getting some stuff done. And so it's in integrity um, and inconsistent with my values to write a book that's very practical. So it's everything from, you know, how to determine if this is the right piece of land and find funding for it through running a youth program through, uh, you know, CSA models and crop selection. So I tried to pack as much in there as my publisher would let me in the page limit. Mm. Um, it's, yeah, you are so comprehensive. Yeah. <laughs> Tools and technology and um, propagating and transplanting and direct seeding and, you know, cover crops. And then I love the whole section about, you know, plant medicine. I think that's really um extensive. You don't see that a lot in, you see it in gardening books, but not necessarily in flower farm or farming books. So that's a big facet of what you're doing too, is helping people see the healing aspect of what they're growing, right? Absolutely. And maybe that's where it especially connects with your listeners, because we have a number of flowers that we use as medicine. Uh, probably my, well, I have a lot of favorite, but <laughs> African rose, rose mallow, which also called sorrel or hibiscus, which is an African native plant from the Angolan region, um, is incredible. I mean, a lot of people might be familiar with it if they've ever had um, sorrel or hamaica to drink around the holidays. Yep. Um, it's a Caribbean, really rich, uh, fruity sort of tea, um, but it also, you know, helps with respiratory infections and inflammation and circulation. Um, and in the spiritual realm, it's a, a flower that's an aphrodisiac to, you know, attract love and incite passion. Mm. <laughs> so we have a number of, of flowers and other herbs that we grow around the farm and love to tell their story and include them in the work. Uh, it's holy work. It's really, it's really magical just to see how all of these sort of, I don't know, it's like you're reclaiming oral history and, and knowledge from other countries and other nations and other, I guess, centuries and bringing it to kind of into modern day practice. Um, and when you talked about the food system being broken, that's the kind of stuff that has disappeared. You know, our, our healthcare system doesn't rely on plants the way it used to. So it's very empowering to see you, you kind of say, no, this is important. And it, it's, we're going to define our own relationship with the land as farmers. Um, I love it. It's really, really exciting. And I, I hope everyone uh, listening gets this, gets this book, ask your libra library to order it or get it for yourself. Um, it's like essential reading, I, I really think. Um, I want to, I want to ask you about your story, Leah, if you can, we switch gears a little bit? Sure. <laughs> I was so struck by your story of how you found your land. And we alluded to it at the beginning of, of the, when I asked you to talk about soul fire, how, what is your background? Did you grow up with access to a farm or, or a garden or like what, what is in your DNA that drew you to this? <laughs> well, I did grow up 
rurally most of the time. So I live with my three siblings and my dad in a trailer in rural Ashburnham, Massachusetts. And my mom, for much of my childhood, was more urban. She was in the Boston, Roxbury area. So we would spend time with her uh, when that was possible. So a little window into both worlds. I did not, however, grow up on a farm. I developed this intense, passionate relationship with nature really out of necessity because mm. as black children in a very white town, um, making friends was difficult. We were bullied, we were taunted. And so the forest was a, you know, an, a respite. It mm. was um, a retreat. Mm-hmm. And I became an environmental activist from a young age. And so, so when it was time to find a job at age 16, I was looking for something that related to the earth and the food project job, um, which is a sort of youth development organization that uses farming as a tool for that growth, uh, caught my eye. My, my mother gave me a flyer and I thought, you know, maybe this is the thing. And sure enough, you know, right from that first day of hoeing a row and harvesting cilantro and experiencing the elegant simplicity of, of harvesting a carrot and then bringing it to a soup kitchen to mm-hmm. serve, mm-hmm. I was just totally hooked. I was like, this is, this is my life work. And was that in Boston then? Were you, was that like an urban program? Yeah, so they have a rural or a suburban farm, I guess you'd say, in Lincoln. That's quite large. It's about 40 acres. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they have urban farms in uh, Dorchester and Roxbury. So we would go between. Mm. I have relatives who live in Dorchester and Roxbury. I can picture exactly uh, how exciting it would be to see food growing on a vacant lot. Or I don't know where it was, but I'm just picturing it was, Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of... um, unbuilt space <laughs> that, uh, you know, that you could claim for, for growing. But for a 16 year old, that must've just been incredibly empowering. Um, and from that you went on basically to be a lifelong af- a- activist, uh, in the, in the food justice system while also teaching, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I continued to work on farms throughout my teens and early 20s. I worked at the farm school in Massachusetts, um, Many Hands Organic Farm. My husband-to-be, who was my buddy at the time, uh, we started a youth farming program modeled after the food project in Worcester that was called Youth Grow, um, and it's still running. So we did you know, a bunch of, of urban farming projects before eventually moving to uh, upstate New York mm-hmm. and where we could afford land and, and finding the land here. Um, but yes, it's true. Also, at the same time as as farming, I have been nourishing a career as a high school environmental science teacher. And it's been a good 16, 17 years now of doing that. Um, I'm currently part time at the Darrow School. Uh, but before that, I worked in the pub- a public school in Albany and before that, a public school in Worcester. Wow. Oh, wow, Leah, you've really juggled a lot. Um, and yet uh, it teaching teenagers has got to be super, it's, it's like super important work that you, especially if you're teaching environmental science, you, you your farm is a big factor of your teaching, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, my students know how to, you know, test different proxies for soil carbon sequestration and, mm. you know, mm. write, a, write a soil report. So I, I certainly integrate the two worlds when uh, I can. Oh, that's so cool. One of the things that you wrote about in the, uh, in the book was about Finding land. And you, I was really struck by a comment you made where you said, it never occurred to me to find an, an older farmer who perhaps wanted to see uh, his or her land move into the hands of a, of a younger farmer. And wouldn't that have been great because 
maybe all the rocks would have been dug out of the soil by that time or whatever. Like, can you talk a little bit about what you see the disconnect happening with young farmers trying to find land and, and maybe maybe what's happening to address that? Sure. You know, sometimes I call it the frontier mentality, <laughs> this idea that that we get in our culture that we always have to start something new and fresh and own it all by ourselves. And and we certainly had an ask, a bit of that. Um, and in retrospect, it, it might have made sense to you know, partner up with someone who was exiting the career and and support them in that transition and make sure the farm lived on. Um, something we're dealing with right now, especially in the black farming community, is that those older farmers live predominantly in the southeast. Mm. And a lot of the aspiring farmers are in urban areas in the northeast and the west. Mm -hmm. So what we're working on is really thinking about how to link together these communities, uh, both for skills and knowledge transfer, but also potentially for land transfer. There's um, a movement going on right now that we term affectionately the reverse great migration mm. because, you know, six million black folks fled the racial violence of the South and came to the North. And, and now there's this slow trickle back. Um, we collaborate with an organization called SAFON, the Southeast African American Farmers Organic Network, to try to make those linkages. And that's just in its baby stages. You know, we're very connected to the returning generation farmers in the North, and they're very connected to the older farmers in the South. And so we're trying to figure out what that database and program looks like to help people find each other. Oh my gosh, that's so inspiring. And it makes so much sense to... Um, well, I know just living in the West that so much farmland has basically um, become too valuable to farm. It's become, right, right. Uh, you know, real, real estate is just, you know, transforming the landscape on the West Coast, probably on the in north the Northeast as well. And so the net the net acreage is shrinking. Mm. So mm. I, you know, that, and I don't know that that has anything to do with what you're seeing, but. I do, I, I love the picture that you painted of like this reverse migration and what is that going to do to the agricultural community in the Southeast? It's going to be so exciting to see that land continue to be farmed, but, you know, maybe with people with more energy and more, more um, skills or more passion or a different idea, different model, maybe from commodity crops to more, you know, specialty food crops? I don't know. Is that kind of happening in, in the mix as well? It's a great question. I think it's too early to tell, but it's certainly my hope mm -hmm. um, that it's not just about folks moving back, but also bringing fresh ideas mm -hmm. and new ways of listening. You know, I think that we have a throwaway culture around our elders where we aren't listening and respecting their knowledge and wisdom. You know, many people have been on their land for generations. They know what grows well. They know uh, when the birds come back and and I'm hoping that we also learn to sort of sit at the feet of our elders and listen and learn from them. I feel like that's really uh, just, I don't know you, but just having read the way you write, which is beautiful, and the storytelling aspect of um, what you, you know, how you wove, weave stories through uh, Farming While Black, you, you nurture that kind of learning, even at um, the small and large gatherings at Soulfire, where there is a lot of openness to ideas and that you want to bring everybody together to to affirm and learn from each other. And I, I just think that's so not present in so many aspects of our society. It's just it's inspiring to see that that's something that's a real value for for Soulfire. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. 
Well, I, um, I want to know how we can support you. I mean, how can people in the flower farming community and the floral design <laughs> community, um, you know, make, make an effort to um, encourage maybe people of color to grow flower farms as well. I mean, I, one of the things I always advocate is that there's uh, a lot of value-added product in that space that maybe for some people is a better way to make a living on maybe on a small scale. Like if you only had a half an acre, um, mm-hmm. I'd love to, I'd love to, um, just support you. If, if you ever find, come across somebody who is interested in that area of farming, uh, I, you know, we can connect a Slow Flowers member to mentor them or to, you know, host an internship or something like that. I just want to, want to encourage you that that's another option. <laughs> I see that as another option in farming. I, I don't know if that's come across your your radar yet or often. Oh, for sure. Yeah, we have the one sibling farm, uh, Rocksteady Farm and Flowers. That's just about an hour south of us in Miller to New York, and they have an incredible flower operation. Have been so generous with us. Yep, um, we know them. Sharing their their okay, sharing yeah. their products and also you know job opportunities and internship opportunities. And so oh, that's so cool I think, that I think you work folks with them. Are aware and, yeah, and really excited about. Um, you know, all aspects of, of what's possible on a small scale. So thank you for that. Yeah, that absolutely. That well, you're kind of hitting the road on this book tour. You've been speaking all over the country. I've checked out your calendar because I was hoping you'd come to Seattle. But um, how are you juggling all of that with um, <laughs> this, you know, farm to run and family and, oh, and teaching? <laughs> oh, it's a little, it's definitely a little nuts. <laughs> it's definitely a little nuts. But I'm, you know, I'm so grateful. Our one of the ways that our ancestors have taught um, the next generation in the past is is through the griot tradition um, or the storytelling. Mm. And so I'm trying to lean into that. You know, I come from a long line of, of pastors and clergy and really thinking about how to harness the power of the stories we tell to catalyze action and to help people feel belonging and agency. Um, so it's really, it's a gift and it's an honor. And um, certainly challenging for me because I'm super introverted and I also love being on the land. And so I have to and I fortify myself for the trips. Um, but, but they're energizing as well. Just getting to know people all over the place who are doing, uh, overlapping work is, is very exciting. Wow. That's yeah, that I can see where it's just like you, you have this information to share, but you're a little bit, um, happier just puttering around, um, <laughs> sowing seeds and you really <laughs> yeah. have to like bring your game. <laughs> Exactly. You got to turn it on. <laughs> well, I, I think I'll, uh, I'll grab your, your upcoming schedule and share that. Uh, so people who are listening to this can maybe come find you and hear you at, it seems like you're speaking at a lot of um, like organic farming conferences, that sort of, um, that kind of venue seems to be, uh, one of the ways people can find you around, maybe not coast. I don't know. You're kind of speaking coast to coast, aren't you? Yeah, I'll be in California in May. I'm in the Midwest in March, as well as the Southeast, uh, Washington, D.C., Pennsylvania. So oh I'm gosh. not getting to the Northwest this year, but another member of our team, Amani Olubala, actually will be in February spending some time um, in the Northwest. And that's that's on our soulfirefarm.org program calendar as well. Oh, so folks can, oh great. Can I'll, catch that. Yeah, I'll check that out. That's wonderful. Um, uh, what new projects do you have going? Anything that you want to um, kind of put on the horizon for people to think about and um, maybe follow along and, and support your work? For sure. Um, so one of the most exciting things in 2019 is our land trust collaboration that we have with about 150 black and brown farmers across the Northeast, as well as a number of indigenous tribal communities. And our goal is rematriation. That's 
giving land back to folks from whom it was stolen. And we will have an organization that's set up to receive land donations and, and purchase land and then get it back to community members. So we're super excited about that. Um, there's a lot of attention on the project all around the country, folks who want to do similar things. And there'll be chances for, for people to contribute if they do have land or they know folks who have land um, to give it back. Um, so we're very excited about that because you can't grow any food or flowers if you don't have earth. My God, I, that, that, first of all, I want to make sure I heard you correctly. You called it rematriation, not repatriation, right? That is right. Is that a phrase that you, you and this group of folks have coined, or I've never heard that term before? No, I've actually been taught it by a number of indigenous communities um, who are preferring rematriation to honor the um, matriarchal mm. um, and women-centered leadership in their communities. Mm. Um, so, wow. Yeah. So in a way, it sounds like the way it works is if there's somebody who owns, has access to land and is currently an owner of land that, as, as we've discussed, you know, by privilege they've received, um, and they want to support the rematriation, there's a trust that will receive the donation of land and all the legalities around that. And then, exactly. and then a process for applicants to you know, I guess, apply to receive acreage. Is that how it works? Exactly. And the way that a land trust um, usually works, so there's a number of models, is that the trust, which has a community governance board and strict guidelines around how the land is going to be used and protected forever, then gives out a long-term lease mm. to the user, mm. uh, whether that's an individual or a co-op, a farmer. Um, and that lease has some terms around, you know, how the land is used that's consistent with the mission. Um, in some cases, the trust can actually give the title away to the land. And usually we would only do that in the case of giving it to um, a tribal government. Mm, so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, we're still in formation, do, you know, doing all the paperwork for that. We just had an amazing membership meeting last night and elected our council and so on. And so it's, it's, it's in formation. It's a baby project, but it's the impact is going to be really profound. I'm excited. Oh my God, that's so exciting. And, and what is the actual name of the trust that you're involved with? Sure. It's called the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust. Okay. Wow. It's, it's, that could be your next book then, Leah. I mean, that's, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, because I feel like you're you're writing a new a new practice that that others will want to emulate, and you know, like <clears throat> back to your teaching philosophy, if you can share that knowledge instead of someone having to struggle to to find it out on their own, that seems to be one of your values central to the farm and your mission. So this could be something replicated if if your group kind of does all the hard work. <laughs> Just set up right. the roadmap. <laughs> wow, that's great. Well, uh, Leah, thank you so much for joining me today. I am just I just in awe of what you're doing and humbled to be be told the story. Um, I just uh, it's profound and um, I really wish you great success going forward. I would love to stay in touch and see how Slow Flowers community can support this really important work and uh, get the word out about Farming While Black. I just think it's a wonderful book and you've done really epic work. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation. I've enjoyed it and we'll meet in person someday, I'm sure. Thank you so much, Leah. Thank you too. Take care.
Thank you so much for joining my conversation with Leah Penniman of Soul Fire Farm and Farming While Black, originally broadcast as episode 385 on Wednesday, January 23rd of 2019. As I mentioned in the interview, Farming While Black is required reading for all farmers and for anyone who wants to have a deeper insight into the racism and injustice in our country's agricultural history. I highly recommend it. Leah's passion and spirit jumps off the page as she inspires, informs, instigates, and shares her important life's work, as well as her incredibly smart farming advice. I invited Leah to return to the Soul Flowers podcast this week and to give us an update about Soul Fire Farm's work. But due to the demands of farming and activism, her schedule didn't work with ours. But I'm grateful that Soul Flower Farm sent us an extensive list of new resources and action items to help the Soul Flowers community get more involved in social justice work to support Black-owned farms. Their message read as follows. We are humbled by the outpouring of support we have received from you in the last couple of weeks, instilling us with hope for a more just future amidst the grief we feel about the continued legacy of anti-Black police violence in our nation. Here is a list of action steps you can take right now. Call your congressperson and tell them to end the war on black lives. Check out the declaration that Soulfire Farm wrote in response to the recent wave of anti-black police murders that contains links to many resources and calls for action. Donate to projects on the reparations map for black indigenous farmers and learn more at soulfirefarm.org. I've put all these links in our show notes for today's episode, um, 463 at com. So hopefully you can uh, click on over and find those. There's lots of resources, including their uh, Soul Fire Farm's annual report, their policies, and resource list for food and land sovereignty during covid as a show of support from the Soul Flowers podcast, we've made a $250 donation to Soul Fire Farm, and we sent Leah and her team a one-year membership in Soul Flowers. We are eager to learn and listen, and I invite you to join me in this important endeavor. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of the American cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. I value your support and invite you to show your thanks with a donation to support my ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button in the column to the right at DebraPrinzing.com. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers Podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more American-grown flowers on the table, one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging onto iTunes and posting a listener review. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers Podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. Learn more about his work at soundbodymovement.com. Thank you.